Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's ProAssurance second quarter earnings conference call. As a reminder, today's conference is being recorded. For opening remarks and introductions, I will now turn the call over to Mr. Frank O'Neill. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, Karen. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin our discussion of second quarter 2011 results after a couple of important notes. On Wednesday, August 3, 2011, we reported our results for second quarter and first six months of 2011 in a news release and an accompanying 8K. Along with our SEC filings, including the 10Q file this morning, these documents provide you important, detailed information about our company and our industry. These documents also discuss and detail many important factors that could affect the outcome of future events and thus cause our actual results to differ materially from current projections or expectations. Please read and understand these cautions, and please be aware that statements we make on this call dealing with projections, estimates, and expectations are explicitly identified as forward-looking statements subject to these and other risks. Except as required by law or regulation, we will not undertake and expressly disclaim any obligation to update or alter information disclosed as part of these forward-looking statements. The content of this call is accurate only on Thursday, October 4, 2011. If you happen to be reading a transcript of this call, please know that we did not authorize it and we have not reviewed it for accuracy. Thus, the transcript you're reading may contain factual or transcription errors that could materially alter the intent or meaning of our statements. A final reminder, we're going to be referencing non-GAAP items in our call today. Please refer to our recent filing on Form 10-Q and our recent news release for reconciliation of these non-GAAP numbers to their GAAP counterparts. Participating on today's call are our Chairman and CEO, Stan Starnes, our President, Vic Adamo, Chief Financial Officer, Ned Rand, and Howard Friedman, our Chief Underwriting Officer and our Actuary. Stan, will you please start off for us? Thank you, Frank, and good morning. This quarter's solid results underscore the benefit of adhering to a plan that focuses on building an enterprise for and over the long term. The quarter's highlights include a number of items worthy of mention. First, we experienced continued top-line growth, produced in part by a meaningful strategic acquisition. We also enjoyed bottom-line growth, resulting from many years of dedication to building and retaining a customer base that values the true difference of being insured by ProAssurance. Finally, we continue to grow book value per share. The measurement we believe best showcases our solid track record. All of this positions us financially to continue building value for our shareholders and operationally to respond to the rapidly changing world of healthcare. Frank? Thanks, Steph. Ned, would you uh, review results from the quarter in the first half? Happy to, Frank. Unless I specifically mention otherwise, I'm going to be addressing the quarter results. Gross premium written was $115 million, a 17% increase over the same period a year ago. In the quarter and year to date, we've added $10 million and $30 million, respectively, in premium from our acquisition of American Physician Services, or APS, the part of our disciplined strategy to grow as markets and business allow. We wrote about $8 million of new physician business in the quarter which includes about $5 million of gross written premium in the certitude program we launched with Ascension Health on April 1st. And while it's not new business, I'll highlight the fact that we renewed a significant number of our two-year policies in the quarter. 
Net premiums earned were up 9% quarter over quarter to $137 million. We received a $1.6 million benefit to pre-tax income in the quarter as as the result of the commutation of a reinsurance treaty with Khaleesi Re, formerly AXA Re. The commutation increased net earned premium by $5.6 million and net losses by $4 million, which translates into a half-point benefit to the net loss ratio. The low interest rate environment continues to be a challenge, and we continue to be faced with reinvesting at lower interest rates when compared to what is maturing in our portfolio, resulting in a decline in our net investment income. Net investment income in the second quarter was $36 million compared to $37 million a year ago. Our TIPS allocation produced almost $2 million in investment income in the quarter compared to $900,000 in the second quarter of 2010. This increase somewhat muted the year-over-year decline in net investment income for the quarter. But for long-term analysis, I believe the 2010 number is closer to the typical run rate for our TIPS investments. Our net investment result, which is the sum of net investment income plus any earnings or losses in our unconsolidated subsidiaries, was down $4 million, or 11% year-over-year. The key drivers here are the elimination of one investment during the latter part of 2010 that produced favorable results in Q2 2010, and the impact of our increased allocation to federal tax credit limited partnerships. As we discussed last quarter, while these tax credit investments actually have a negative impact on our investment results, decreasing the result by $1.3 million in the quarter, this is more than offset by a benefit in our tax liability, which was reduced by $1.8 million in the quarter. Total expenses were down 3% for the quarter, for the quarter, uh, the second quarter in a row. And again, this is primarily due to the effect of net favorable reserve development. In the second quarter, underwriting expenses, including expenses at APS, were up about 4% compared to last year, and the expense ratio was down half a point compared to 2010. Net favorable loss development was $50 million in the quarter compared to $38 million last year. Howard will go into greater detail in reserves shortly. Operating income for the quarter was $54 million, a 27% increase over last year, and net income was $55 million for the quarter, a 36% increase over 2010. On a diluted per share basis, that equates to operating income of $1.74 per share, up 35% over last year, and net income of $1.79 per share, a 46% increase compared to 2010. Return on equity on an annualized basis was 11.4% in the quarter, an improvement of 2.3 points over last year's second quarter. And it was 10.8% for the year-to-date, an increase of 1.8 points over the year-ago period. Book value per share is up 7% this year, standing at $64.28 at the end of the first six months of 2011. And tangible book value per share is $57.17, a 7.6% increase over year-end. As Stan said, we believe that growth in book value per share is probably the best indicator of our overall success as an enterprise, both for shareholders and insurers. That's why we place so much emphasis on growing book value per share. While we did not purchase any of our shares in the quarter, I want to be clear that share repurchase remains an important part of our capital management strategy. That's evidenced by the $315 million we spent to repurchase shares in the last five years. As we've stressed, there are a number of factors we evaluate when deciding about share repurchase, such as the amount of cash on hand and the appropriate amount of cash to hold, the cost of replacing capital, 
and the effect of buying shares on book value per share and return on equity. Frank? Thanks, Ned. Howard, would you give us some insights on reserve development on the loss and rate climate in general? Sure, Frank. The $50 million of net favorable reserve development in the quarter comes primarily from accident years 2004 to 2009 in our non-APS business, which amounted to $45 million. The remaining $5 million comes from favorable development in the APS book. As I mentioned last quarter, the development at APS is principally for the 2010 accident year. We found that claims are resolved much sooner in Texas than other states, and we are thus able to make a judgment about loss development more quickly for that book. Given that reality, our analysis shows Texas claim severity has declined below our December 31, 2010 estimates. That said, loss trends remain mostly unchanged this year. The overall frequency trend is flat, just as it's been since approximately the end of 2008. Severity trends are also stable and manageable, rising at a level of approximately 4% per year. We have discussed our rate-making philosophy in prior calls, but I want to highlight again the approach of blending and loss history for a number of years to ensure that we are pricing adequately for the risks we face. As loss trends have improved, we've reflected that in our rates, but always with the idea that the rates we charge must meet our return hurdles to ensure financial stability and our ability to pay future claims. For the year-to-date, average pricing on renewing business, including PICA, is down about 3%, compared to a 1% overall decline in average pricing on renewals in the first six months of 2010. Retention for the six months and to June 30th was 90%, as it was in the quarter. Both, period, both periods are a point better than last year. In all, the market is still as competitive as ever, but we do not see any one competitor that stands out in terms of overall pricing or concessions on coverage terms. There's always an isolated incident of very competitive behavior, but that's generally on the better accounts where competition is most fierce. We don't think that signals a further downturn in market conditions. Thanks, Howard. Uh, before we let you go, will you update us on the Ascension Health Program? Sure. As you heard, we added about $5 million in gross premium due to the inception of that program in April. We've mentioned the Certitude Program for a couple of quarters now, but this might be a good time to recap how it works and will work going forward. The physicians targeted by the Certitude Program in the April 1st Michigan rollout were all previously insured by an Ascension Health affiliate. Because of this, much of the premium from this block of business is ceded back to Ascension as part of our risk-sharing arrangement. Going forward, business will largely come from the ranks of physicians now insured in the open market, and we will retain a greater part of the risk and the premium. We're beginning to write some of those physicians in Michigan now and are encouraged by the initial results. As a result of the Certitude Program's success and acceptance to date, we expect to move it into at least three additional states by year-end. Great. Thank you, Howard. Vic, can you touch on some of the accomplishments during the quarter? Sure, Frank. I'm pleased to note a couple of external recognitions in the quarter. We were named to the Wards 50 for the fifth straight year. Being named to this list in any one year is a great accomplishment, but to do it five years in a row really emphasizes the long-term success engine of ProAssurance. Ward starts with more than 3,000 property casualty writers in the United States and whittles that list down to the top 2% of 
uh, PNC carriers by applying a number of safety screens and financial measurements over a rolling five-year period. We're quite proud of this achievement. In addition, AMBEST reiterated their A rating on the Pro Assurance Group in the quarter, so we're pleased that their yearly checkup on our financial health earned us an A again for this year. Sam? Recognition such as this underscores the value of the long-term approach we've applied since we began operating as a public company 20 years ago in September of 1991. Since that time, we've grown book value per share at a compound annual growth rate of 16%, and our share price has grown at a compound annual growth rate of 15%. These are notable gains that prove the value of our strategy in a very difficult business. Think back over that 20 years for a moment. During that time, how many medical professional writers failed, and how many saw their share price plummet due to reserve or pricing issues? Think about the companies that simply left our business, some after decades of market leadership. We should be reminded that despite the relatively benign lost climate of recent years, this is not an easy business, and enduring success is an accomplishment of which we are all justifiably proud. This kind of long-term, disciplined approach to this business is what has given us the ability to grow ProAssurance by consolidating companies and books of business, more than 20 in all, and to expand into new states and new markets, and to find new opportunities to address in the emerging challenges created in healthcare and healthcare liability. I'm tremendously excited about what lies ahead, and I have every confidence that we've built a solid foundation, financially and operationally, all through our dedication to treat it fairly. Frank? Thanks, Stan. Thanks, everybody. We're going to ask Karen to open the line for questions. Thank you. To ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad at this time. If you are using a speakerphone, please ensure your mute button is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Once again, that is star 1 to ask a question. We'll pause for a moment to assemble the queue. We'll take our first question from Amit Kumar with Macquarie. Morning, Thanks. Uh, good morning, and uh, congrats on another strong quarter. Um, just going back to your opening comments uh, regarding Ascension um, and uh, expanding and retaining more, can you sort of maybe just expand a bit more uh, in terms of how we should think about uh, the level of premiums? Uh, and the level of retentions uh, going forward. I'll take that. Uh, we uh, we are expanding the program, as we mentioned. Uh, we're we're not at this point going to specify which states we're expanding it into, but we mentioned that uh, we expect three more states this year and and other states in, in 2012. Uh, in the initial. Uh, Michigan rollout, as I had mentioned earlier, the business that was written as of the April 1st common effective date was business that was insured with uh, Ascension's affiliate previously. So under the risk sharing, as I mentioned, a lot of that goes back to Ascension. Going forward, we expect to see more of the risk um, retained by us, and over a period of time, there will be more of a balance 
uh, in the uh, in the in the sharing of risk. Uh, I think that's about all I can say right now. Is that uh, answer your question? Yeah, and I think the other thing is because there there is some variability in the in that risk sharing depending on the source of the business, and a lot of these positions that are, we're now targeting are open market insureds. It, it's really hard for us to make any accurate predictions. Correct. Um, I, I, I guess what I was trying to understand was that uh, does you know does that five million grow to you know something less than fifty million just in terms of some broader range? That that's what I was trying to understand. You know, what's the sort of the uh, the upside to the premium number? Omitted stand. We have not put a number on it internally. Um, it's an opportunity about which we're excited, but it's an opportunity that has to be executed. Uh, this is, to our knowledge, a unique program that carries unique attributes, and so it would be folly to try to guess it, it, what it may mean. I mean, all we can do is, is, is tell you the results as they occur. Okay. Um, moving on, I guess, related to that is uh, the, the, the authorization the discussion you have. Uh, 194 million remaining for buyback or, or repurchasing debt. Can you just sort of expand uh, how you think about capital levels uh, currently, and maybe refresh us uh, on what your thoughts are on maybe a special dividend or a common stock dividend? Hey, Amit, it's Ned. Um, from a from a capital level standpoint, we we. Um, certainly have adequate capital to, to run our operations and recognize that we have some level of excess capital. Um, we do not put out a, a specific number as to what we think that excess capital amount might be. We continue to, to view share repurchase as a, a viable means of returning capital to the marketplace. Really haven't moved um, from our position that if we see our stock trading below stated book value, we're going to be aggressive buyers of that stock. Above book value, um, we evaluate a, a number of factors, including our perception of uh, what it would cost to replace that capital, competing capital needs, um, competing investment opportunities. Um, as to a special dividend and a, and a periodic dividend, uh, we discuss with our board on a quarterly basis capital management strategies. Nothing's ever off the table, um, but we, we have no current plans. Okay. Um, the, the only other question, and I will read you, is can you just quickly talk about that commutation and if there are other commutations in the pipeline? Thanks, and good luck for the future. Sure. The, the, the commutation, as we said, was with what used to be AXA Re. Um, we, on a pretty continual basis, um, evaluate uh, our older reinsurance treaties. We'll enter into discussions with reinsurers, and if we can find terms that we think are economically fair, um, we'll look to commute those treaties. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a two-party, at, at least a two-party agreement. Oftentimes, you have multiple reinsurers involved, um, and, and it's really a matter of coming to, to terms that everybody can agree upon. But it's something we actively do with our older treaties, and but we'll only take action when as I said, we can come up with something that we think is fair economically. Okay, thanks. That, that's all I have. Next, we'll go to Matt Royman with KBW. Uh, gentlemen, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing, man? 
All right. Uh, just uh, two questions. Uh, first, uh, I know we've talked a number of times before on, uh, you know, doctors moving to hospitals, uh, you know, for the, the lifestyle that provides uh, the stability there. I guess uh, looking back over the first half of the year and, uh, you know, things you've been seeing uh, on a go-forward basis, um, have uh, yourselves or, or anyone out in the marketplace seem to uh, change their strategy in terms of targeting uh, those, those larger institutions to try and uh, attract more of that business? Yeah, Matt, this is Howard. Uh, I guess first I'd say that we don't see any change in that trend. It continues. Um, we uh, are targeting hospital business, and we've written hospitals since the mid-1980s, so it's not new to us but we are making an extra effort to be in the hospital professional liability marketplace because one way, of course, to continue to insure physicians is now to insure the hospitals that are employing and acquiring the physician practices. So we have uh, made a, an extra effort to uh, be more competitive in the hospital marketplace on a reasonable basis, particularly in areas where we have a, a concentration of the physician marketplace and can uh, integrate the, the physician and hospital business together from a claims perspective. Okay, great. So really no no uh, notable changes in the, the competitive landscape overall. No, the hospital market um, is quite competitive and maybe even more so than the physician uh, professional liability market. Okay, great. Um, and then uh, it seems like every quarter we always have, uh, you know, commentary coming from different states such as you know, uh, some folks trying to get rates up in Maryland, uh, some tort reform in North Carolina, uh, Florida uh, looking at, uh, you know, their tort reform there post uh, some M&A activity. Uh, any, any of those or, or other states, anything uh, that you'd be keeping a closer eye on uh, that, that we've seen over the last uh, few months? You know, uh, as we've said many times, we look at every state as a separate business, and so we analyze and evaluate every state individually. Uh, we obviously keep a close eye on what is going on in each state. Uh, okay, so none of those uh, states in particular uh, changes have, have uh, uh, attract more interest from you than others? No, no. We, okay. we, you know, we look at every state separately and every state independently, and we are very driven by data, and we're not particularly driven by headlines. Okay, great. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks, man. Next, we'll go to Mike Grasher with Piper Jaffrey. Uh, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Congratulations on the quarter. Um, quick question just around the, you know, the movement into the hospital marketplace uh, relative to the regular flow. What, what is different about writing that policy from a terms and conditions standpoint as well as the rate? Well, uh, let, me, let me just start by saying that it's not a move into the hospital marketplace. We've, we've been there. and we've Understood, been there. understood. Sure. Maybe more uh, emphasis. Just wanted to clarify that. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a different, uh, certainly a different structure. You're, you're insuring a, a corporate entity that has, in many cases, wide-ranging exposures, both on-site and off-site, where hospitals own outpatient facilities that may or may not be on the campus. They own physician practices that are uh, potentially located where those physicians used to practice before the practice was acquired by the hospital. So the evaluation of the exposure and the loss prevention risk management activities uh, have to be different. Um, we have a, a group of uh, risk management staff that is specialized uh, in identifying hospital professional and general liability risks and, and you know, customize what they're doing for the inpatient exposure, which is 
quite a bit different than evaluating and, and making recommendations on a physician practice. From the structure of the policy, uh, typically you're dealing with a single limit that encompasses all of the activities that arise out of one claim, whereas with a physician policy, you might probably have multiple physicians involved in the same claim, although those physicians have lower individual limits. The hospital tends to buy more of a tower type uh, limit. So it's a different environment and a different, uh, and then finally, I guess you could say a, a different uh, claims environment as well because of the, the limits that are at stake in many cases. Okay. Um, and is there any sense of, uh, I mean, is there a bit of cannibalization that is uh, potentially could arise from something like, or from this? In our own business? Yeah, well, yes, exactly. Uh, I wouldn't. I guess I wouldn't look at it that way. I think it, it's more preservation in, in many instances. Uh, again, because the hospitals are becoming fairly aggressive in, in bringing physicians into their entity one way or the other, either by direct employment or by acquiring their practice and into a subsidiary. So I don't think it. It's not a matter of, of cannibalizing the business that we have. It's really a matter of holding on to some of the business yeah. that we might otherwise lose. Okay, that makes sense. And Vic, I wanted to ask just about uh, um, the opportunities maybe that you're seeing out in the marketplace. Has that changed any at all? Um, you just provide some uh, commentary around the M&A environment? Oh, the M&A environment. Um, it's, it's generally consistent. We, we look into the opportunities that are out there. They're somewhat episodic, as we said in the past. It's more driven by the potential seller side, but we continue to explore every medical professional liability transaction that we're aware of and determine if it's suitable for us to pursue. Okay. And then just a final question um, around APS and in that business. Um, you mentioned, I think, a bit surprised in terms of the duration of the claim or, or coming to uh, resolution. Uh, any other surprises, and, and how is that uh, held up? From a from a underwriting uh, and book of business perspective, uh, pleasantly surprised. I guess maybe is the only surprise I would say in the, uh, the book of business is quite good, and uh, very pleased with the process that we're going through now to integrate uh, computer systems and and operations of the company. Anybody else? That's it. Okay. Uh, thanks very much. Once again, to ask a question, please press star 1. Next, we'll hear from Jack Shirk with SunTrust. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, a question on the faster resolutions in Texas. Just for perspective, how much faster do those settle than the uh, rest of the terms of other states? Broke up a little there at the end of the how, question. How much oh, quicker is uh, APS than others? Yeah. Uh, well, every every state varies and has its own um, payment pattern or, or claims resolution pattern. So, as compared to our overall book of business, Texas is certainly faster. Uh, maybe compared to some other individual states, might not be as different. Uh, but we certainly see cases in Texas being resolved within 15 months uh, of of filing in many instances, which then you know gives us more comfort and, and certainty about uh, what's happening in the more recently filed cases. And then how would that 15 months stack up against the uh, rest of your business? 
Well, again, it varies a lot, but I mean, some states, um, Indiana, as as the other extreme, uh, the average uh, claim resolution in in Indiana can be uh, as much as four years. Right. So uh, it it can be quite a bit different, and that's influenced by the court system. It's influenced by whether or not a state has mandatory uh, arbitration panels or processes in place. Uh, you know, a, a, the length of um, of discovery and and the whole process of discovery. Okay, and then uh, just moving on to rates, uh, just in terms of the little downtick we've seen there, you mentioned it really wasn't. You didn't think it was indicative of any real softer pricing environment. Is that just a mix going on there, or timing of renewals, or just a little more color there would be great? I think what we're trying to say there is that um, the, the the average uh, rate decline in the quarter is quite similar to what we had generally been seeing. In the first quarter of this year, it was a little higher, and as we mentioned then, it was a result of a concentration of business in Ohio where we had a rate decrease and the business was more concentrated in the first quarter. Uh, but I think overall, this quarter was pretty similar to, uh, other than first quarter of 2011, pretty similar to the last four quarters in terms of, of the kind of rate change that we're seeing, which is a reflection of the, the loss cost that we've been seeing in the marketplace and, to some extent, competition. And the competition is uh, more or less similar now than it uh, as compared to what it's been over the past year. Great. Uh, thank you very much. Once again, that is star one to ask a question. Now we'll go to Seth Feinstock with Times Square Capital. Hey, guys. Congrats on another strong quarter. How are you, Seth? Doing well, thanks. Um, was hoping you could please comment on the current loss severity trend and uh, how this rate of change compares to recent uh, prior years. Uh, I think the uh, severity trend is, is quite similar to what we've been seeing over the past uh, year to 18 months. Um, we're seeing trend at about 4% right now, and that is, uh, again, similar to what we saw in 2010, somewhat lower than if you go back year by year. It, it's it's um, lower than what we saw three years ago when we were talking about five or six, and certainly lower than 10 years ago when we were in the high single digits, in some cases, into the low double digits. Okay, and then um, in terms of the favorable development, uh, could you perhaps broadly uh, delineate how much was case reserve takedown versus uh, release of IBNR? Uh, not, not, not immediately, or not at my fingertips here. I think uh, when we have the statutory filed, you'll be able to see it in there. To be to be honest, when we look at the reserving process, what we're projecting is ultimate loss costs, subtracting, right, so. yeah, subtracting paid, whatever case reserve change falls in. So the, we, we don't specifically project IBNR, and, and, you know, and that's why I don't have you know, a, a readily available answer for you. It's more of a, a byproduct of the process. Sure. That's helpful. And then um, maybe one final question. Just uh, curious um, how much capital is currently uh, sitting up at the holding company and uh, if there's been any uh, perhaps share purchase subsequent um, to the end of Q2. We've been in a blackout essentially since uh, July 15th or so, Seth, so I can tell you there's been no share repurchase. I'm kind of tap dancing here while... I think, so I think the, the, the number of kind of available capital at the holding company is 
is roughly $100 million, $97.5 million. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, guys. And once again, that is star one to ask a question. We'll pause for a moment to allow everyone an opportunity to signal. We'll now take a question from Howard Flinker with Flinker and Company. Good morning, Howie. How are you? Nice results, guys. Pretty nice results. Thank you. Better than uh, the results we get in D.C., I think. Um, I got a question about uh, the activity of doctors. Have you seen or been able to see any doctors retiring uh, as a result of the uh, uh, incipient Obamacare in a year and a half? No, I, I don't know that it would be fair to say that, that we've seen a lot of physicians retiring. I think it is fair to say that we see a, a lot of physicians very concerned over the increasing pressures they are under uh, from a regulatory standpoint, a legal liability standpoint, a revenue standpoint, that, that they're sort of at the, at, at the pivot point for all these increasing pressures that society is imposing on them we, we ask an awful lot of our physicians. Yeah, we do. And now we're going to ask even more. Yeah, I wonder. And, go ahead. And, and we here recognize that, and we try to be very responsive uh, to the environment in which our physicians are expected to operate today, and we want to be as helpful as possible in enabling them to navigate these challenges. There are two reasons why I asked. One, um, one of my physicians who doesn't take any um, insurance or medical care, and I want to see him anyhow. The guy used to be at Columbia, now at Cornell. Uh, one day said, what do you do if I retire? And um, he only takes cash or checks, so he doesn't have many of the administrative problems others have, but I'm sure there's only so much he can charge before uh, all his patients go away. Um, so I thought, well, he's not the only guy who's thinking about this. And two, oh, I, right. I, I saw a graph the other day, a rather striking graph, uh, which I've kept, that said that when Obamacare was passed in April of 2010, there was a dramatic slowdown in the, in the uh, creation of new jobs nationwide from the already very slow rebound from the bottom. Exactly one month later, uh, jobs all, new jobs almost went to zero. It was rather striking. And I thought, you know what? If that's going through employers' minds or executives' minds, it's got to be going through more doctors' minds. And I was wondering if you guys had seen that yet. I, I, I know lots of physicians are very concerned. Yeah, they're talking about it, but they haven't done anything yet. Is that, is that a fair uh, uh, description? If, 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 if your physician retires, Howie, you call us and we'll help you find somebody else. <laughs> All right, thanks. Uh, I'll find others, but uh, I, I find ones that are typically more expensive than normal, so they're, they're going to stay on a little longer. But I, I saw what happened in Canada. Young people don't go to medical school, and doctors either leave or drop out, leave if they can go to another country. 
that's my question. Thanks, guys. And again, uh, really good results. Thank you. Once again, that is star one to ask a question. And we'll take a follow-up question from Amit Kumar. Oh, thanks. Uh, just, uh, just two quick follow-ups. Uh, in terms of pricing, uh, I, I know you briefly touched upon the states, but can you sort of separate out uh, the, the, the pricing movement in your core book, uh, the, the foot doctor book, as well as APS? Uh, I think we'd say that APS is part of our core book, as are the uh, doctors of podiatric medicine. They're all physicians, and so they're uh, we really are hard-pressed to break that out. We've got some breakout in the queue that we filed this morning that may be helpful to you. Yeah, no, I, did, I did read that, and that's why I was following up. You know, it did talk about the moving parts in the queue, but it did not expand. In the past, Amit, we had mentioned that um, the podiatric uh, business, in the podiatric business, we were seeing some rate increases because of uh, increasing loss severity and, and recognizing that, but we had not quantified the percentages on that, whereas in our physician, uh, MD, DO, physician, and hospital business, the market is more competitive and loss costs are generally stable or declining, so we've seen some rate decrease. Okay, so thanks, Howard. And, and the only other question is on the tax credit investments. Uh, does, does that number continue to change, or, or is that uh, – did, did you talk about it? Is, is it – are, are you done with that allocation currently? Um, the allocation is, is roughly $100 million. Um, we have committed somewhere between 85 and $90 million of that $100 million. However, there is a, uh, a ramp-up time of actually investing the proceeds, so we would expect over the next couple of quarters to continue to see um, the actual dollar, dollars invested into those tax credits to continue to increase. Got it. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for all the answers. And again, that is star one. We'll pause again for just a moment. And it does appear that there are no further questions at this time. Thanks, everyone. We will speak to you when we report our third quarter results in November. Thanks for joining us this morning. Once again, that does our conference for today. Thank you again for your participation.